Wondering how to navigate local, city, state, or the federal government in order to grow your business, secure funding for your nonprofit, or advance your organization's agenda? Welcome to Lobbying Insider, a podcast that brings listeners to the intersection of business and government to provide a rare perspective on how things actually get done. We will dive into some pressing current issues, provide keen observations from the past, and keep an ever-watchful eye on what's coming next. I'm your host, Zach Fink, Director of External Affairs at Davidoff, Hutcher & Citron. Glad to have you with us. Hello, and welcome to the episode. We are going to discuss where we see at our firm, in particular, the intersection between our law firm and our government affairs practice. Both are equally important. And we're going to discuss, in some cases, where they actually cross over and can complement one another, which makes this firm unique in many respects. We have with us our founder and principal, Sid Davidoff. Sid, can you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your founding of this firm? Yeah, we're going into our 50th year of, of this firm, which is very exciting for us. It started as a just a couple of us sitting around a table. Uh, we're now over 65 lawyers, and a good part of our business with the firm is our government relations and lobbying activities, uh, of which I head up. Derek? Yeah, I'm Derek Wallman. I'm a partner at the firm. I've been a partner here for about 15 years. My practice is real estate litigation, real estate transactions, and construction. And we've been extremely busy. Yeah, a lot going on. I see that. So in terms of a law firm, a lot of law firms in the city, but I do think when you have both elements, both components, where you have both government affairs and a law office, that sometimes not only that differentiate our firm, but also in some instances, they can cross over and complement one another. And we had an example we were going to talk about from just a few years ago involving Ceruzzi Properties. Derek, can you bring us up to speed on what that was? Sure. Uh, it was a very interesting situation, a little bit unique because of the, the circumstances uh, of a particular property at 86th Street and Lexington Avenue. So our client was building a new condominium, high-rise condominium, and historically there had been a subway entrance on the property that was on an easement to the city. So the city had uh, a subway entrance in the building going down to the basement. Client wanted to remove that that entrance so that he could utilize the ground floor and basement of that property for retail. It was a very valuable corner. Yeah, it gets tricky right away, right? Because we're talking about MTA property, then we're talking about retail stores. So right away we have out of the gate three players here who we have to talk to and negotiate with. Exactly. And this, this request immediately, of course, triggered in my mind uh, our government group. So we had to make contacts with the MTA and New York City Transit and discuss with them this proposal and interest them and at the same time try to make a deal. Was the MTA the most complicated component in this? I mean, in terms of dealing with the other businesses, were they more amenable? Oh, yeah. No, we had, we had projected already to bring in a big box store. Okay. Uh, using this space, and we had ultimately we brought in uh, Old Navy mm-hmm. as an anchor, which was a great result. Yeah. But it all high-paying tenant, maybe a big an large anchor, rent. financeable yeah. national credit tenant. So that was important, and having that gross area was very important to them too. So we were able to look at one a unique situation where there was a limited easement in favor of the city to keep that 
subway entrance in the building. For the uninitiated, just briefly explain what an easement is. So an easement is a right in real property that's separate from ownership. So our client owned the property, mm-hmm. but gave a right to the city of New York to use part of the property for their subway entrance. Got it. Okay. So there was, a, there was a physical entrance in the building, staircase that went down to the basement to the subway tracks on Lexington Avenue. Our proposal was to amend that easement, take the subway entrance out of the deeded property of our client's building, and put it on the street. At the same time, this idea went counter to what the MTA's charge was in future construction, which was to take most of the street elements where the subway entrances are on the sidewalk, off the sidewalk, and put them in buildings. Okay. So that they would facilitate more pedestrian ta- traffic. And that corner is a very busy corner. If anyone's been to corner 60. But it's less dip- disruptive if it's, you know, inside a building as opposed to out in the middle of the street or on the corner. Well, it's actually, it's, from the city's point of view, it's less disruptive if it's in the building because the street sidewalk space is wider. Right. Right, so you, you, can, you can walk along at 86th and Lex. It's a very busy commercial corner. Okay. So part of our charge was to try to convince the city that this was a good idea to begin with. And part of the negotiation was that we had some rights, and I won't go into details, to revoke this easement in the future because of the way it was written 100 years before. And at the same time, the MTA was trying to put ADA elevators and other access in major subway stops. They're mandated by the federal government to get that done. So we offered to help them get that elevator in. And in terms of the MTA component here, Sidney, and this is where I think you played a role in getting them to the table with all this, because normally I would imagine, Derek, you can say in, in a situation like this, there are a bunch of competing interests. You're trying to get everybody to yes, which can be very complicated. And one of the hardest, Sid, as you know, is sometimes a government agency and getting able to being able to get in touch with the right person. Without a doubt. And, and particularly when it comes to an authority, which really has separate powers, but still has its, its political input from the governor and the mayor's office in, in terms of the MCA, because both the governor and the mayor have appointments to that board, although it's pretty much controlled by the governor. And in this case, we were running sort of against policy of where th- what they were going to do with t- taking it out of and putting it on the sidewalk, which they did not want to do. However, the compelling argument here was the disabilities elevator, which where they were required to put into a number of subways. So it, we had to get it to the right people at the MTA, the decision makers, and, and showing them that the public good was really on the side of putting it on the sidewalk. And that took phone calls to the highest levels, relationships the, you had? The highest levels in the relationship we had. And that makes all the difference in this, in this instance. Yeah, you, you know, you got to get it out of the engineers. You know, the 15 engineers sitting around a table who, who say, no, 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 no. And you got to get up to the policymakers at the very top who can see the, the argument as we propose it. Government can be very difficult to navigate, and people are, tend to be siloed off and looking after their own interests, right? So you have to get it to a level where there's someone who can actually say, this is in the best interest of the agency or the city. Yeah, and particularly where you're going a little bit outside what the norm is. Right. Because, again, the bureaucrat is there to follow the rules and regulations and in the most expeditious way, in the least costly way, et cetera, et cetera. You now have to get to a different level to show that this is one of those things that should be outside the norm. Quick information about the ADA. This is the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was signed into law in July of 1990 by George H.W. Bush. This was compared 
at the time to the landmark civil rights legislation of 1965. It basically said that people with disabilities have rights just like everybody else. That includes wheelchair access, and it particularly applies to a system like the MTA, which controls the New York City subway system, to allow it so that someone in a wheelchair has the same access to public transit as everybody else. Now, just in terms of where we are, this was roughly 33 years ago. Today, there are 472 subway stations in the city of New York, of which 140 are in full compliance with the ADA. That is about a 30% compliance rate, which I don't need to say is not a very good one. So you look at Manhattan, it's slightly higher. It's about 39%, but still not really numbers to write home about. So what's very interesting in this, by the way, I should say the buses are a lot better. They get a new fleet every several years, and they are wheelchair accessible. So they've done better in that department. But it's very cost prohibitive for the MTA to build out these stations. In some cases, the platforms are ancient. They can't even accommodate. They have to be expanded. And then you're, in this particular instance, for example, having to put in elevators so that someone who is in a wheelchair can actually get down to the platform. So that is very expensive. And the MTA is not only, it's not a pay-as-you-go system, meaning that it it doesn't pay for itself. It needs government assistance. And it also has a, a very robust capital plan, which requires further investment. So in this instance, when you talk about an elevator and you can get perhaps the client to pay for it, that sounds like one of those situations that's win, win, win. Well, uh, you take it from here, Derek, because that was part of the negotiation. It seemed like a no-brainer. <laughs> right. <laughs> from, In theory, a, that's a, that everybody, everybody gets what they want, right? Right. It sounds good. And then what always happens is competing interests, not only outside uh, city government, but within the city government, uh, take hold. So, you know, there's city real estate. There is New York City transit. And within transit, there's something called street elements. And then there's the historical preservation for the actual subway platform. Right. There are a myriad of other... People come out of the woodwork, right? Everybody's got an angle in this city. Everybody's got an agenda and they don't always align. In fact, they rarely do. They often compete. They compete or they just have input. And in a situation like this, people have to actually think it over. It's not cookie cutter. Yeah. And so to get everyone in a room and actually make a decision is extremely difficult. Right. All the goodwill being there, still you have multiple meetings, adjournments, we're going to consider one thing, one person will consider it, they'll come back and have a problem, someone else will consider that problem. It can go on ad nauseum. And what you learn dealing with government, city government, particularly in this case, is as so aptly said, once it goes out of that narrow uh, corridor where everyone's comfortable, nobody wants to make a decision because it's not either not my job or I'm worried that I'm going to go out on a limb <laughs> right. and I'm going to be criticized for right, it. Right. <laughs> so uh, it, takes, it takes someone from above to pay attention and say, it's okay. Right. You can get this done. And that's, that's really where you know, someone like Sid comes, comes in as the most important player. And in terms of getting the client to pay for something like this, like an elevator, for example, they're trying very hard at the MTA to get as many compliance stations as they can. So presumably that's a good thing to dangle in front of them. And I guess they did that, but there was a limit on what you were willing to offer. Yes, um, they were very happy to have that, uh, that offer and they expressed the urgency of their mandate, as you so aptly said. Uh, the city's way behind in compliance and they're trying to show to the federal government that we are compliant here. We, or at least we're trying. We, right, we're trying. Here's another, here's another station where we've, we've created ADA access. 
But at the same time, there's another part of the transit authority to say, well, how do we pay for this? And how do we pay to install it? And then how do we pay to maintain it? That's two different budgets. It's right. a capital budget and there's a maintenance. And in this instance, the city was very clear, we don't pay for anything, they said. <laughs> right. <laughs> Great. So, That's helpful, right? <laughs> right. So their position was, well, okay, <laughs> thanks for making this offer, but right. <laughs> we'll take it as long as you pay for maintenance in perpetuity. In perpetuity, right, which means that the sole responsibility for maintaining the elevator so they can be ADA compliant is your client. Right. Not right. only my client, but any future owner of this property, right. which would be encumbered with this obligation for the rest of eternity. And of course, that affects the marketability of the building and the operating costs of the building forever. So I can't imagine that was going to fly, Sid. And I guess at this point, there needed to be kind of some sort of negotiation to get around that offer from the MTA. Right. And it was difficult getting the MTA off the uh, in perpetuity, you know, argument and, and demand. But with Derek, we came up with a solution to give us a lump sum su sufficient to make them feel comfortable. Okay. And without affecting the bottom line of uh, the future of the building. And you recall what that was? It's about a billion dollars. Okay. So, in, but that's in addition to the contribution to build the elevator. Right. We had to build the elevator. So, you know, you know, we're not talking insubstantial dollars here. You right. know, you're building an elevator that's that's built to hold disabled people. Yeah. Coming out of the sidewalk, you've seen them uh, if you've walked around, particularly in Manhattan, as you yeah. said before, it's to build heavy machinery and then to put another million dollars one-time payment to maintain it going forward. So it was substantial. Yeah. And was that what kind of broke it? I mean, was it was was the MTA willing to come back and say, okay, that's a fair payment as far as we're concerned, and and therefore that was that kind of what broke the logjam and got everybody to after a lot of uh, <laughs> meetings, cajoling, yeah. and, and and just saying, look at the benefit to the city, right? Look at the benefit to where we are and what you need to do with ADA compliance. I think the better minds got together and said it's the right deal, right. And just because everybody has a motive that would seem to point in the right direction doesn't necessarily mean, right, that everybody's going to sign off on that and say that it's, it's in the best interest, right? I mean, I, I would imagine there are a number of instances where, you know, not only is that a heavy lift, but, but you, you might even have a partner who's unwilling to go there. So to tie it all together is no easy task. Well, it's getting the client to agree that the course was within range and getting the MTA to agree that it was sufficient enough uh, and make everybody feel comfortable that no one would consider this a giveaway. So when anybody looked at it from the public or the press, they'd say this is the deal that should have been done. Right. And I think we passed all the smell tests. And you think, is the MTA more sensitive to how it's going to look in the public eye than, let's say, a private sector client? Or, or are they both equally concerned about how they come out of the deal? There's no doubt, not necessarily the engineers sitting at the table, but there's no doubt as you get upstairs and there's a board that's appointed by the governor and the mayor and you've got an operator, you know, an executive director who's, Pointed by the governor, that and reports to the governor, that that you know no one wants to be second guessed here. As the, it was a giveaway because you know we're friends, so that kind of right, uh, dumb right, thing. Right. It has to be. It really has to pass a smell test. Right. One of the things that my job uh, on the lobbying side, uh, Derek has to make the best deal he can make, and he's got to you know put it into writing and make it stand up. Well, part of my job is to understand what it'll look like when it's all over. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always say, you know, I was in City Hall for eight years, and I said, don't expect someone to do something that you wouldn't do if you were sitting there. Yeah, You can't ask somebody. You've got to look at it from that side of the desk and say, is this a fair deal? 
clients don't always necessarily agree whether you're doing it correctly. But the fact is, you've got to understand who's sitting on the other side of the desk and that they have somebody to answer to. And very often it's the public and the press. And it's understanding, I mean, you worked in the Lindsay administration, yeah. so, so you dealt with these kinds of public interest issues, I would imagine, all the time. And required Every day. Negotiation with the private sector, right? And, and, and that, was, that was always a complex process, it's fair to say? Very complex, but today it's even more so with all the community boards, with everybody having a camera, uh, you know, and, and an ability to communicate to the world. Right. We didn't have cell phones and so on. The inter- we didn't have an internet. Uh, you know, if you had a computer, you, uh, I don't even think we, we I, I don't I never had a computer. Right. So uh, it was it was a different kind of communication. Today, it's even more sensitive. 24 hour news, etc. So it's really understanding both sides of the table. What is a fair deal for your client? And what is a fair deal for the city or state or whatever entity you're dealing with? Which is the public interest, which can be a hard yes. to quantify, you know, d- designation, right? Yeah. And, and so... The other side of that coin was yeah. what happened on 68th Street as opposed to 86th Street and the Imperial House, which is, uh, to my knowledge, the largest residential building in the city of New York. It's a com- uh, complete block between Lexington 3rd, 68th, and 69th Street. Okay. So it is substantial. It's right substantial by Hunter College over there. Right by Hunter College. And interesting enough, Hunter College, the only exit off of that train to, was on 68th Street. There was no yeah. other exit off. And at, at rush hours, both morning and afternoon, it could be as much as a five-minute wait to get out or in to the subway because of the crowds waiting for the, for the train to come in, load up, and so on. And in the best interest of the city, the MTS came one day and said, we're going to put an entrance on the, the southeast corner of 69th Street and Lexington Avenue, which is the corner that Imperial House has. They have like a horseshoe driveway. Okay. You know, you drive in one. Yeah, right. And is one of the busiest walking streets yeah. because of the, of the hospitals going all along the east side there. There's a huge amount coming in. And Hunter College. And the college. That's a tremendous amount of foot traffic. So this affected Imperial House greatly. And they wanted to fight, and that's when they retained us. Uh, They wanted to fight putting it there. And in that particular case, we did just the opposite of 86th Street. We got the MTA to agree to buy one of our stores on Lexington Avenue, east side Lexington Avenue, to put the subway entrance in. So in this case, we took it off the street and made the staircase down to the subway in one of the stores, which required, again, that's when the legals get involved because we had leases, we had the break, right. we had to move around some stores. It's a co-op. We had to take that property out of the co-op with the bank, oh, wow. et cetera, okay. yeah. <laughs> create a, a unit for them. To, the city actually purchased and owns that particular property. It's not an easement. Yeah. Uh, and they have full responsibilities for it. And that was a four-year project. Yeah. And was not an easy one. It doesn't sound like we it. We involved yeah. the congresswoman at the time, Calvin Maloney, you know, we had all the local officials. We had Hunter College involved, Jessica Reb. Uh, who was then the president of, of Hunter College. I mean, it was a, a, a an effort, as I say, four years to get this thing done, one, from a policy point of view, and then from a legal point of view with all the real estate issues that go along with carving out a, a cooperative property. And I think the result was a great result. Yeah. I think everybody's happy with the result. But it's, it's just so interesting because at the same time, we're trying to get the one taken out of the store and put on the street in 86th Street without trying to get something off the street and putting it into the store. Right. You know, it was yeah. actually a lot of fun. 
But I would imagine <laughs> there's a lot of juggling, and you and you you thrive on this. This is what you do well, here. You know, so, this is yeah. what we do. But yeah. again, the public policy was it was really you know we're talking about a property that was what 16, 18 blocks away, so different than in the two you know a piece of Manhattan where it was the right thing to do right. on eighty sixth Street, and it was the opposite right thing to do on on sixty eighth Street. And, and it's both worked well. And the other interesting thing is, as I was saying, on 86th Street, you know, the city's position is we don't we don't have the money, we we don't pay for these things. If you, you want something, you're going to have to pay for it. Yourself. Pay for it yourself. We don't have the budget. Right. right. And I think Sid's being a little modest on the 68th Street side because, in an extremely rare event, we convinced the city to buy this storefront area so that they could convert to, it to yeah. convert for our convenience to put a uh, subway entrance in the building. Did they buy it the at market rate or what? what, what did yes, they go? well, okay. we had we had appraisal. Oh, they have to do that. Okay. It had to pass all the federal smell test because federal okay. money was involved here. It's taxpayer and, money, and so, right, right. And, and, and uh, no, it definitely had to be done at an appraisal rate. And I think I think it was fair all the way around. You know, yeah. we never, the dollar question, it was multi-million dollars we talk about for a piece of property there. So it was getting to the idea that they, they have to pay for it and what it's going to be and they have to maintain it. And the interesting thing is it can only be done in certain areas because of where you need it in order to relate to the platform. Right. And it's, so this is an engineering thing. Too, which you gotta, right. The engineers had to redraft everything as opposed to what would have been a much easier for their purposes right. to just close the street. It would be much less convenient for the public, but much more convenient for the MTA. So it was getting everybody around the table and getting it done, particularly since, you know, they had to pay for it. Right. So, uh, <laughs> no, no easy task, right? <laughs> but it was done. It was done. And in both instances, it was a successful outcome. But, you know, that this is not always something that would get done. I mean, Derek, you're an attorney. You know that very often, I would imagine, there are instances where all the stakeholders dig in. There's no resolution unless there's a government affairs component to kind of bring that element into it to kind of convince people that this is in the best interest, you, you could have people staking out their positions and tied up for years. Oh, yeah. It would never have happened. Right. And, and you know, having the ability not only to, to deal with city government trans and transit, but also with Hunter College and other stakeholders in the neighborhood, the community boards, is something that, again, you need sophisticated government relations knowledge and contacts to do. And for me, on my end, there was also big issue with the retail stores facing 3rd Avenue, uh, Lexington Avenue on that block because they were dealing with the prospect of having a big subway entrance blocking their, their Blocking access to their, to their store, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and they um, don't want that. They didn't want that either. And that, that you know, severely affected the marketability of that retail space for the, for the co-op where they get you know, their, their maintenance subsidized. So it was important for all of those to satisfy the, the leaseholders on the commercial side to make sure that it was a boon to the public so that they had enhanced access to the sidewalk and the subway at the same time. So it was a win-win, but there are a lot of moving pieces. We are getting near the end here, Sid, but I did want to hear your final thoughts on just what it is about DHC that kind of makes us unique to handle these kinds of problems when there are so many competing interests, and one of them might be government. Well, I, I think you started out exactly. We're fortunate to have some very good lawyers here. I said we've grown to, we have uh, over 65 lawyers now. So we're able to rely on the legal side, and they're able to rely on, the, on our knowledge of the government. So very often one has to call upon the other to, and sometimes it requires litigation. Right. 
you know, we'll be in the middle of a negotiation with the city or state or whatever entity it is, and we have no place to go but litigation. So, and then you get into the public relations too, because once, if it's a very, and it generally is something that's very public that the community is interested in, you want to have a public relations part. Actually, this is where you fit in, Zach. Right. <laughs> but to be able to <laughs> present the story, to tell the story, and to get it to the to the media that you're focusing on right. of what you're trying to do, without it look like you're, you know, the story. Oh, they're just guys who influence the government. That may look like it sometimes, but if the, if the story is told correctly, it has to do with a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge, a lot of good lawyers behind us, ability to present the case, and the ability to get heard on that case. And, you know, a lot of times it's a no. Right. It isn't always a yes. It's, it you know, right. it's nice. We had two good Which is why we highlighted here. these two but cases. But, you know, right, right. a no or a yes is important. An answer is important. Once we have the answer, we know how to go forward. If it's a no, it may be litigation. If it's a yes, then it's a negotiation. But that's, I think, somewhat unique that this firm has that many others don't. And I think sometimes public relations gets a bad rap, but sometimes it's a way of honestly presenting the story to the public. Yeah. You know, and that there is a benefit. Right. All right. That is going to do it for this week's episode of Lobbying Insider Podcast. We want to thank you for being with us. We'll be with you again soon for another episode. I want to thank Derek and Sid. Thanks, guys, for being with us. Thank you. Thank you.